little more than uh, a little more than a year ago, there was a school district up in Evanston that uh, it was in the news because um, there was a certain curriculum that was. Uh, that it was teaching to its students. So, so Evanston District uh, 65 adopted and implemented a curriculum that, uh, in which students from 8th grade, I think down to pre-K, were, were taught a specific set of, of values and beliefs regarding gender, regarding sexuality. And uh, what I want to highlight this morning isn't so much the curriculum itself, but, but the response to it. Now, now, unsurprisingly, parents, community members on all sides of the issue spoke out quite vocally in the years leading up to that uh, implementation and then during the implementation of the curriculum as well. Now, now, if you'll allow me to ask a question with an obvious answer, why do we get so passionate about the things being taught to our kids? And what's the big deal, right? And please hear the, <laughs> the sarcasm in, in that. In that uh, but that's an easy one. Right? We, we know that the things which, which we put into our minds affect how we think, how we, how we believe, how we talk, how we act. We know that a child cannot be immersed in a certain system without having it impact them in various ways. We just know this. And again, it doesn't matter where a person falls on that issue or any other issue. We know that our kids' brains are malleable, and, and they will be influenced by the things that they're confronted with. We, we do know this. But it's not just our kids. It's not just the kids. A, a, a word you hear more and more in the area of brain science is the word neuroplasticity. And this speaks to the reality that our, our brains, even as adults, are malleable. That means that even when we are 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, we're still being impacted, we're still being formed by the things that we put into our brains. And modern science and technology can can actually document these changes in a person's brain. It's really quite fascinating how it all works. But all that modern science is doing in this area is, is it's finally catching up with the reality spoken of more than once in the Bible. Different places in the Bible encourage followers of Jesus to pay attention to the things that that we're thinking about, the things that we focus upon. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter six, for example, Moses encouraged Jewish families to speak regularly about about God, about his love, about, excuse me, about God's commands. Why? Why why would Moses encourage encourage that? It's because of this reality that the things which we recite and observe and meditate upon, they impact us. And so that reality is the thrust of this next sermon series uh, that we're starting today. And I've entitled this series, Renew Your Mind. And the title comes from the command of Paul 
in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Okay, and I would encourage you to, to turn there in your Bible or, or pull it up on your phone. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 947. And I, I just want to start by, uh, by just reading the first half of, of verse 2, Romans 12, 2, what Paul says there. Paul writes and says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so in that statement, Paul, Paul recognized the reality that people were being conformed, they were being shaped by the world around them. But instead of being conformed to the fallen age, he stated that we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to something different, different than the world, the fallen age. <clears throat> but what is that something different? And, and why does it matter? Well, we're going to get into that this morning. We'll answer that question. But, but I think first we have to set the foundation upon which Paul makes that statement. So before he wrote verse 2, this is going to be a tough quiz to make sure you're awake. Before he wrote verse 2, he wrote verse one, right? So we're going to make sure. So we're going to start there. So Romans 12, 1, the first half of that verse, Paul writes, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I want to just stop right there to talk about the first half first. So Romans chapter 12 is a transition point in the letter. I mean, the quiz gets harder. Before the chapter 12, he wrote, 11 chapters before it, right? So chapter 12 is the transition point. And, and the NIV uh, translation maybe highlights the, the transition a bit better. In the NIV it says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy. And so we can really see what, what Paul's going to do starting in chapter 12 is he's going to give the practical application of all that he's already written in the first 11 chapters. And so what does Paul write in the first 11 chapters? It's only some of the most theologically rich and dense passages of the New Testament, I think, can be argued. It, it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul in the first 11 chapters masterfully spells out God's righteousness. He spells out our sinfulness as fallen humans, our inability to change and be set free from sin on our own. Uh, he talks about the incredible mercy of God in becoming human, taking our sin upon himself and, and giving us new life in him. He talks about all of that in the first 11 chapters and he makes specific statements, statements such as, as these. In chapter three he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter five he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter seven he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 10, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
the work of God in the lives of believers is awesome. It, it, is, it is through his mercy that he chose to give us life through the sacrifice of himself. He takes our place in receiving the righteous judgment that, our, that we deserve, that we deserve as the result of our sins. And, and so when Paul gets to chapter 12, verse one, he states that as a result of God's mercy, in the light of God's mercy, all these things that he's been writing about in the first 11 chapters, this incredible mercy of God, in light of that, we ought to respond in a certain way. So, so let's read all of verse one now, Romans 12, one. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul says, well, we ought to respond by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. When he talks about that, he's making a direct connection with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, sacrifices were brought to God at the temple for, for one of two basic reasons. One, they were brought in order to make atonement for sin. So the life of that animal was given and its blood was poured out in place of the human offender that brought the animal. But what we know from the previous 11 chapters in Romans is that Jesus himself paid that penalty on the cross. We are no longer dead in our sins. We've been given new life in Jesus. His life was poured out for our sins. So, so when, ba- when Paul talks about uh, presenting our bodies as sacrifices, he can't have that first reason in mind. That's not what he's talking about. It, it, it's not a matter of securing atonement for our sins. It's not that kind of sacrifice. The other reason that sacrifices were brought to God in the Old Testament was in worshipful response to what he had done, what God had done, either in the life of the individual or in the life of the community as a whole. So something like a first fruits offering was given in worship to God, thanking him for his provision and and trusting him for what was yet to come. There were, there were thanksgiving offerings, uh, peace offerings, wave offerings. They were all intended to give praise to God and, and signify fellowship between God and the people. They, they were voluntary expressions of worship toward God in response to his works, what God had done. Again, either in the life of the individual or the entire community. That's what Paul has in mind in verse one, when he talks about, about uh, you know, in light of who God is, and specifically in light of God's mercy toward us, we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's what Paul's thinking about in response to what God has done. And so the question then would be, what, what would be a worthy sacrifice? I would love to ask that question after just reading straight through the first 11 chapters, but, but for the sake of time, I summarized it earlier. But in light of all that God has done, 
the great mercy that he has shown, the new life that he has given us, forgiveness through his, through his son who died on the cross. What is a worthy sacrifice in response to that? And I think the answer is everything. It is our entire being. That is the worthy sacrifice. The phrase that, that is used there, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, it's intended to convey something much more than just a physical offering. You think about those Old Testament sacrifices. It, it wasn't just the physical body of the animal that was offered to God. It was the very life of the animal. That's why you couldn't sacrifice an animal that was already dead. You know, if you, if you, had, a, uh, you know, if you had some goats and you went out one morning and found that one of your goats had died overnight, you couldn't take that goat to the temple and offer it to God as a sacrifice. It wasn't allowed. Right? It was, it, was, it was never about the physical body. It was about the life. It was about the entire being of that animal. So sacrifices which God accepts and, and sacrifices which speak to his great worth are complete and total sacrifices. So when we, when we give of ourselves completely to God, we are making a holy and acceptable offering before him, as Paul states. The NIV uses the, the word pleasing, holy and pleasing. God, in, in his mercy, has saved our entire person. He has saved us completely. It's only reasonable that we ought to offer our entire person to him in worshipful response. And, and, and that's what the phrase spiritual worship at the end of verse one, that's what that is conveying. Um, the footnote in the ESV version says uh, rational service. The Greek word is logikos. It's only logical that we offer ourselves fully to God in response to his great work and his great worth. It just makes sense that we would give of ourselves completely to him as that, as that uh, holy and acceptable worship. But the question then is how do we do that? How do we do that? What, is it, what does it look like to offer ourselves completely to God? We're called to it, but what does it look like? And, and this is where things differ from the Old Testament sacrifices. We are not to engage in human sacrifice, right? God does not want us to physically lay our life down on a physical altar. In fact, we are commanded not to do so. Verse 1 says we are to be a living sacrifice. So then, what does it mean? What does Paul have in mind? I think he's already hinted at it earlier in Romans. And I just want to read a couple of verses from chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says this. He's, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, 
leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So we are to offer ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, as slaves to righteousness, as Paul says. In other words, we are to, to think and believe and talk and act rightly in accordance with truth. Or maybe said another way, we are to, to offer ourselves completely to God as a living sacrifice by living according to his will, not our own will. We follow the example of Jesus who sacrificed his own human desires for the sake of carrying out the Father's will. We become a living sacrifice when we lay down our own will in order to follow God's will. And Paul states at the end of verse two then, back in chapter 12, the way in which we offer our bodies as living sacrifices is to perform the will of God. So let me just read all of verses one and two now. It's all building on itself. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I know Paul writes here about discerning what is the will of God, but I think implicit in his statement is also carrying out the will of God. We're not living sacrifices simply because we know the will of God. We are living sacrifices when we know and submit to the will of God. I mean, Jesus knew the will of God for him to give his life on the cross. But the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane on the night of his arrest showed that there's more to it than just knowing. It was him submitting to God's will as well. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices in response to God's great mercy by submitting to the will of God for us. There's the discerning, but the discerning ought to lead to submitting. And in case we aren't sure that the will of God is worth submitting to, Paul describes it in three ways at the end of verse two. He says it's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. Good, acceptable, and perfect. So good, the the will of God is good. Now there's there's two common Greek words that, that often get translated into English word good. One of those words, it speaks of something that is good because of its inherent attributes or its inherent beauty. So, so it's goodness that describes the nature of an object. The other Greek word for good speaks of something that is good because it is beneficial. So it's, it's, it's goodness is the result of the outcome of the object or the action or whatever. When Paul refers to God's will as good in verse two, he's using that second one. He's using the word for a beneficial outcome. There is benefit for us when we discern and submit to the will of God. We will never submit to the will of God and be worse off because of it. 
It won't happen. Now, even though we might not understand the benefit, or, or even though the benefit might, might not show itself until much later, maybe even in eternity, it's still beneficial for us. It's still good in that way. Uh, the, the famous verse from Romans 8 that Paul wrote earlier, for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's that same word, all things work together for our benefit. We're not, we're not promised more money or better health or more friends or, or, or other things that we might immediately think of as beneficial. Instead, we are promised that by submitting to the will of God, that it is truly beneficial, that it, it is good in that way often in the eternal sense, but, but for here and now as well. It is for our good. It is beneficial. So Paul writes, the will of God is good. He, he also says it's, it's acceptable, it's pleasing. It, it links back to verse one, Paul's description of being a living sacrifice that is acceptable or pleasing. The will of God is pleasing because it, it brings him glory and honor when it's carried out. Uh, if you go back to Matthew 17, the, the, the story of the transfiguration. Jesus is on the mountain, he's transfigured, and God's, God's voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So what our Kids Connection kids were talking about that this past Wednesday. It's that same, the same word that Paul's using here to, to talk about God's will being acceptable. Right? God's will is pleasing to him and God's people submitting to his will is pleasing to him. He looks on it with favor. He looks on it with approval. He accepts that act of worship. Right? When, when, when we are submitting to God's will, we never have to worry about how he feels about it. We don't. We don't have to wonder how he will respond. He is well pleased when we discern and when we submit to his will. So it's good, it's acceptable, and Paul says it's perfect. God's will is perfect. It's not lacking anything. It is complete. It, it, it leads to his purposes being carried out in full. Again, and we, we may wonder about, we may struggle to understand God's purposes, but as we submit to his will, we can be perfectly confident that we are walking according to his plan and purpose. And I'm not saying it's a smooth road with not any bumps, I'm not saying that at all, but it is the will that he has for us and that it is it's pleasing to him, it's good and it's perfect. It's perfect as we walk in his ways. So, so to kind of sum all that up, before we get to the heart of this sermon series, we discern and we submit to God's will in order to be a living sacrifice appropriately given to God because of his great mercy shown to us. But the million dollar question that remains is, well, how do I know the will of God? How, how do I know the will of God? I, yeah, I agree, God's mercy is extravagant, it's incredible. I agree that my right response is to offer myself completely to him. I desire to do that. I agree that discerning and submitting to God's will is how I offer myself as a living sacrifice, but, but how can I discern God's will so that I can submit to it? That, that's the question, right? 
Well, one of the ways which Paul highlights here is by the renewal of our minds. The renewal of our minds. It's not by being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And there's both a, there's a negative and there's a positive command there. When Paul says not to be conformed to the world, he's, he's, he's talking about our relationship with the age. Right? It, it, it's not about... It's not about this divide between physical and spiritual. It's not about transcending the evil physical world in order to travel to the good spiritual realm. That's, that's Gnostic thinking and that is spoken against all over in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. What Paul's talking about is, is it, it's about not blending in. It's about not being the same pattern as the customs and habits and beliefs of the age. To be conformed to the world is to blend in with the fallen age. In contrast, the positive command, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but the positive command is to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So the Greek word there, metamorpho, that's, that's the word for transformed. We get metamorphosis from that. Being transformed is about being changed into something different than before. Instead of blending in with the world, we must be different from it, as Paul writes. Rather than reflecting the image of the age, we reflect the image of God. Rather than submitting to our own will, we submit to God's will. Rather, uh, well, it's, it, it's, it's what is at the heart of being in the world, but not of the world. We've probably heard that statement before. That's, that, that's what Paul's driving at here. We don't want to be of the same pattern as the fallen world around us. We want to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so as, as God does his sanctifying, transforming work within us, our minds are renewed. That's what he does. And in many ways, the mind is the battlefield where we either begin to conform to the world or are transformed by the Holy Spirit. The mind can be ground zero for that. That's why Paul wrote those words to the church at Colossae that we read earlier. And I just want to read those couple verses again in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. So to set our minds on things that are above is, is to set our minds on Christ who is above, Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Being seated at the right hand of God speaks of rule, speaks of authority. So by setting our minds on the authority and rule of Jesus above, we remember that his authority and rule extends to this world as well, this world that he has created, this world over which he reigns. And as such, his words carry weight, not just above, but here as well. You know, as, as I stated at the beginning, we intuitively know that what goes into our minds affects us. 
You might say it conforms us to something. We know that. We see it. If what consistently goes into our minds is the ways of the fallen age, we will be conformed to it. We just will. This age, this, this society, it tells us what we're supposed to think and why we're supposed to think it. And sometimes those messages are pretty overt. Sometimes they're very subtle. But, we're, but we're, we will be conformed to it as we dwell upon it and think about it and take it in. As followers of Jesus, what we're called to do is set our minds upon Jesus and upon his words rather than the message of the age. We can be transformed, not, not just in how we think, but in how we, how we uh, talk, how we act, our attitudes, what we believe. We, we can be transformed as our minds are renewed by the work of God within us. And so for the next six weeks, that, that, that's the goal of, the, of this sermon series. We're going to explore some specific topics and what the Bible says about those things. I mean, the age around us tells us something. What does God have to say about it? We're going to look at topics. Uh, I'll just give you the list. We're going to look at the topics of uh, sexuality, the value of life, my rights, my identity, the church, politics, I'm going to preach that one and then leave for two weeks to go to Israel, so maybe that was intentional. I mean, those are six areas where the thinking of this world, this age, will conform us to itself, but those are six areas where we need to be transformed in our thinking. And again, we want to be transformed so that we can discern and submit to the will of God, because that is how we offer our lives as a living sacrifice in response to his great mercy. And so we're going to need to come at these topics humbly. We are. Uh, odds are we will come to realize that some of our ways of thinking, even though some of our ways of thinking might be common among other Christians, they're not necessarily in line with God's ways. I'm probably more conformed to the pattern of this world than I'm aware of. I probably am, and so I need to, and, and what we all need to do is for God to renew our minds, renew our minds, and, and we ought to open ourselves to that work by setting our minds on Jesus, setting our minds, taking in his words for us, exploring what he has to say in these different areas. As we renew our minds, we will be able to discern God's will in all these areas. The great thing is that, that God promises to reveal himself, to reveal truth to us as we humbly come to him and seek it. And so as we do that, as we discern and submit to God's will, we will be presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. And it will be the logical response to all that he has done for us, the great mercy that he has shown to us so that's my goal for the next six weeks. That's the journey that, that we'll be going on together. I'm excited to, to take it with you. I'm excited for what God will reveal to me as I spend time in these areas. You know, we talk about responding to God's mercy shown to us. One of the ways we do that is offering ourselves to him. 
Another way we do it is, is just by publicly proclaiming what he has done through speaking words of, of, of how God has worked. And, and what we have the joy today of doing is celebrating with five individuals who are giving public proclamation of that work of God within them. That work specifically being God's mercy shown to them by way of their salvation. And so uh, four from among our church body were baptized uh, at Miracle Camp just a few weeks ago. And so what we're going to do is uh, Graham Morris and Danny Martin, they're going to come share their individual testimonies with us. And then we'll see a video clip of their baptisms. And then following that, we'll see another video where uh, Jake and Shannon Bridges share their testimony on the video. And we also see some pictures and video of their baptism. And then a fifth person, Marilyn Lamb, is going to be baptized in person today. So four of them have already taken place, but we're still going to celebrate and and, uh, bear witness to um, to the testimonies that are shared, and then the fifth one will, um, will take place here this morning. So, um, so Graham, would you come up and get us started doing that this morning? <laughs> 